everybody. I hope you are having a beautiful day. Uh, recently, I posted a piece in Fairy God Boss talking about how you don't have to have a background in technology in order to work in blockchain. Why? Because blockchain isn't an industry. It's a new kind of technology that's being used to disrupt countless industries. So whatever your passions are, whatever you're good at, whatever your background is, that can be applied to blockchain. Just like whoever was in fashion or food or in music or whatever, uh, before the dot-com boom, they still had a place in the internet, as we can see now. Uh, so I definitely want you to keep learning about blockchain and see how you can bring uh, your interests and match it with blockchain tech and see how you can get involved. So that's something I want to really highlight on this podcast, some people who came from non-tech backgrounds and started working in the blockchain world. Today's guest, Kelly Weaver, is the founder and CEO of Melrose PR. Uh, they started off doing PR for lifestyle brands, and now they're focusing really on blockchain ventures. It's wild. And I also want to give a shout out to Kelly's future little girl. She's having a baby, the blockchain baby, and we're all super excited for her. So congratulations, and I can't wait until your baby girl hears this episode and is crazy proud of you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Blockchain Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Ronnie Rose, and today we're interviewing Kelly Weaver, the founder and CEO of Melrose PR. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. So you weren't always in tech. What were you doing before you got into tech? Great question, because I never thought I would find myself here. Um, I discovered uh, public relations when I was in college at USC. I always knew that I wanted to be a business owner, and I always loved media. Like I loved magazines and um, reading articles, and I didn't know that this industry existed where you could have relationships with all of these different reporters, but not necessarily be a, a journalist yourself, but you know, communicate brand messages to reporters. And so when I discovered this industry, I thought, that's what I've been looking for. And so I started um, in college. I had internships with big PR firms, small PR firms, mostly with um, celebrities and entertainment at the time. And then as soon as I graduated, I got a job at a boutique PR firm that handled mostly hospitality. So clients included like restaurants and hotels. Um, and we did travel, you know, press trips and things like that. And I was there for about three years. And then I left um, and was kind of looking for the next thing that I was going to do. And I was still quite young at the time. I was 23 or almost 24. And I picked up a couple of freelance PR clients while I was kind of looking for what to do because friends kept saying to like restaurant owner friends, you know, Kelly does PR, she could help you guys. And so I had a couple of freelance clients. And then one of my friends was just like, you know, why don't you start a business? And at this point, I wasn't even 24. Um, and I just thought I really have nothing to lose. Why not start a company? And that's how the idea for Melrose PR was born. And it launched in 2012. I was 24. I, um, had restaurant and hospitality clients to start out with, cause that was sort of my comfort zone. We worked with a lot of consumer products, 
So really consumer facing stuff. We did a lot of events, um, worked with bloggers and uh, different members of the media and really enjoyed what we did. And the, the company definitely evolved. And over the course of the years, I kept looking for something to be a specific niche that we could specialize in because we're based in Los Angeles. And there's just a lot of PR companies, especially boutique PR companies. They're like a dime a dozen. Uh-huh. So I kept thinking we should specialize in something. And so we had tried restaurants, we had tried hotels, we had tried consumer products, but I'd really shied away from tech because I thought I'd have no technical background whatsoever. And I'm not even sure that I can communicate that to the world. And I just felt like I didn't really have a mind for it. So I shied away from it. But an advisor around late 2015, early 2016, the landscape around us had changed in the West side of Los Angeles. And, you know, companies like Snapchat were all around us and so many tech startups had just emerged. And so we were sort of in the middle of all of this explosion. And an advisor said to me, you know, I have a couple of companies that I'm working with, and I'd really love for you guys to work with them. And maybe you just take them on as, you know, events clients where you just run events with them, community related events. And I thought, okay, events we can do, you know? So we started working with two different companies, one of whom was a blockchain company. um, And they're called Gem. They're based in Venice. They are a enterprise blockchain solutions provider. Um, So their clients include like Capital One and Toyota and Philips working on blockchain pilots. And actually, they're just launching a really cool crypto platform now. So they've kind of dipped their toes into crypto, which makes a lot of sense. Their founder is super smart and is kind of like one of these OG Bitcoin guys. Anyway, I'm really excited about their new product that they're rolling out. And you're still working with them? You're still representing them? We're not, we're not, but we're still very close with them. Um, They've been working on mostly internal communications, but they are rolling out this new project that I'm really excited about. And I'm very friendly with all of the team. So yeah, I am familiar with what they're doing now, but they've, anyway, they've made a pivot Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. But back when we worked with them in early 2016, we worked with them from 2016 to 2017, they were, you know, enterprise solutions. And so they made it really approachable. And I think That was our introduction to blockchain. And at that time, Bitcoin was like a dirty word. Nobody talked about it. We weren't allowed to talk about it in our sort of... I love that description. (laughs) Yeah, it was like not talked about. And even in our outreach to reporters, we were really told, you know, let's not associate ourselves with Bitcoin. We're a blockchain enterprise solutions provider. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here are the pilots that we're doing in healthcare and supply chain. Anyway, we went all over the country with Jem, um, sort of as an extension of their team, which was really friendly and nice of them to have us to all of these different conferences. And so as we started meeting different players within the industry and different teams who were doing this potentially world-changing projects, we thought, you know, these guys are really, really talented, but they, they're not like necessarily the best at explaining what they're doing. Huge, huge problem in the blockchain industry. And I think because we don't have any sort of technical background, my team doesn't either, although some of them do now, but, um, we're, we're very consumer friendly, mm-hmm. consumer facing in sort of our messaging. And so when people would talk to me with all of this jargon and these big words, I'd just be like, my eyes would start to glaze over and I'd get bored. And so I kind of thought there's a need in this industry for good communications that is more mainstream. Cause I kept thinking, you know, this technology is so exciting and I totally fell down the rabbit hole and got bit by the bug, but I found like there was a real need for good communications. And so really it was like an opportunity that we saw slash a passion that we had. And then we put together the pieces. Again, I had been looking for this niche and I thought, you know, blockchain technology, like it's going to be huge. And I just had this instinctual, you know, voice in my head saying, this is going to be 
your niche. And so we put together the pieces on our website and we, of course, were meeting other teams. And so we, it happened somewhat organically, especially in 2016, mm-hmm. where we were introduced to other enterprise um, applications like Madhive that was working on ad tech solutions. And so it happened sort of slowly, but in 2017, the market absolutely exploded. And there we were, sort of found ourselves in the right place at the right time, working on the right stuff. Another reason that we saw it as an opportunity was because when we started doing outreach to reporters for GEM, we realized that there actually aren't even that many reporters covering this topic at the time, maybe 20 really solid reporters. And so we were like, you know, this is an opportunity for us to really get to know everybody who's having an impact here in this industry. And so we thought, you know, wow, this is a cool niche. And at the time, I mean, there were maybe one or two other firms specializing in this, but really not many. And that's I mean, I'm talking globally. Right. So if you think about this industry being worldwide, there really weren't that many marketing or PR firms sort of positioned. Right. So that sort of brings us to today. So I want to go back a little bit. Uh, as, as you said, you didn't really start off with much of a tech background. Then you came into this new technology and you're very consumer facing and you know how to speak to the consumer and speak on their level uh, and speak to their understanding. And that's very different from repping lifestyle brands or hotels or hospitality, whatever. Um, cause people are familiar with that. Even in tech, if you were to rep social media companies, people are familiar with that. They understand it. This is a totally new technology. So when you were growing up, you know, Uh, whether in college or high school or whatever, how did you sort of develop these skills of being able to uh, communicate to others? You know, what what were some pivotal moments that really taught you that this is what you wanted to do and you wanted to be that sort of translator and explainer and uh, big promoter and whatnot? I think part of it is just my nature. I like to meet people and discover new things and talk to people. And so I kind of see my job as glue between like, I'm kind of the person in between the brand and the reporter, right, as a publicist. And so I saw this as a skill where we could work with the brands, but then also get this message to those, you know, now you think of influencers and you think of like social media influencers, you know, like, and that's a huge market too. And and really cool that it's almost more accessible. Like everybody is a publicist in a way, and a lot of it's being brought in house. Right. But I really thought that, you know, that was a gift and I really liked to meet people and talk to people. And so that was, you know, something that I wanted to do. I, I would say now in PR, you really have to have a strong, um, like writing is a skill that is really important. And and that is because a lot of the industry now, you know, the reporters are extremely short staffed these days, way more so than, you know, eight or nine years ago when I started in PR, or I guess it's been more like 10, but now reporters, you almost have to write things as you want to see them and send them to them like that. Like it's much less a pitch and an introduction. Now that varies. Sometimes, you know, you can make an introduction and they'll write the whole article from scratch. But, you know, I, we sympathize for these reporters because they've got so much going on. And so sometimes you kind of have to spell it out for them. And, and so writing is really important. Right. And like I said, a big like educational aspect in here. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, writing's like not one of my favorite things. I think I'm much more of, I like meeting people and talking to people. I'm not a bad writer by any means. I definitely am good at like writing pitches and getting the message across, but I much prefer the sort of verbal oral communications, which is why I launched my podcast because it's sort of my media channel. I just felt like that was more suited to me than having like a byline because I did for for a couple of years have a Huffington Post byline and I enjoyed it, but it was always kind of like a chore to sit down and write. And whereas I love having these conversations. Yeah. So I think that I know the writing and podcasting world pretty well now. So 
I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's just like different people have different preferences and skill sets. And so mm-hmm. had I been starting in PR now, I mean, I don't know if I would be as attracted to it because it really is writing heavy. And luckily now I run a business with a bunch of talented people. And so I have a lot <laughs> of amazing writers on staff. So that problem is sort of solved for me. But yeah, I think that, you know, those sort of inherent skills that I had and, and like the things that brought me joy, like meeting people and talking to people and connecting people, you know, I found in this industry and that's what, you know, drew me to it. What were some of the challenges when you were building Melrose PR, you know, whether it's structurally or making that shift from lifestyle to blockchain focus? What did you experience? I think the most difficult part of building any business is hiring the right people to help. Mm -hmm. You know, people are amazing, but also can be difficult to find like the right fit. And so it took me a long time to figure out what I needed and people that complemented my skill sets, but then also, you know, brought to the team, like we're very much a team mentality. So those people who are sort of out for themselves don't do as well in our organization as those who are real team players and have a team mentality. And I've learned that sort of later on, Mm -hmm. especially as we've grown. Like, so to give you some perspective, we were always a small team. Like I had about, when I first launched Melrose, it was just me for four months. Then I hired my first employee. Then I hired my second employee shortly thereafter, about six months in. And we were a team of about... That's growing rather quickly. That's pretty awesome. It was pretty, it was quicker than I had thought. So yeah, but six months in, we had three people. And then between, you know, 2012, the rest of 2012 and 2015, we only ever had between three and five people at any given time. So we were a really small company. Okay. Now cut to 2017, we grew from... You guys exploded. Yeah, now we have 11. I always say we grow one person at a time. Mm-hmm. We are really selective about the people that we bring on. And we've made some mistakes. Like sometimes we'll bring people on and they'll they'll realize that it's not a fit for them a couple of weeks in or, or vice versa. But I think that's been the most challenging part of running a business. And I love people and I love working with others. And so that was surprising to me. I wouldn't say that I would have thought that that would have been the most difficult, but it it probably has been the most challenging is like bringing the right talent together. But I will say I've never felt so confident in the past as I have in the past, really this year, the past four months or five months that we have the most incredible team. And now I actually have PJ, our COO, who joined in January, has really changed my life because he's taken so much off of my plate, which has just been uh, remarkable. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I think I was working, you know, like r- really, really hard. And I still am working really hard, but he's definitely helped a lot. And so it's given me a lot more flexibility to, to do the things that I really enjoy doing versus all of the aspects of running a business. And so when you find someone like that who can kind of co-lead with you, it's a pretty magical moment in running a business, you know? Definitely. Especially when we have such a big team. And so there's so many people and so many pe- different people's needs, you know? So to have someone else who can also be there for everybody versus the clients because we don't service he and I don't service the clients directly anymore it's you know we have teams that service our clients and so we're really there to serve the the people who manage the clients clients. of course and so yeah and all the moving parts within the organization and then he and I also tag team on some of the sales and business development which I really really enjoy that part but um yeah it's like it's allowed you to take on more of the right roles and responsibilities as the CEO. Yeah. For sure. And I had tried, like, he's the third person that I've tried for a role like that. And, you know, it took me, so it took me, you know, three times to get it right. And he and I just work really well together. So 
it's amazing to sort of get there. Definitely. At this moment, I feel really confident in our company because I feel like, you know, it's not just everything's not resting on my shoulders. In fact, I could go away and not much would change. Mm -hmm. So that's a good place to be. Yeah, that's very assuring. And as I said, you guys exploded in the sense that like, Everybody knows Melrose PR, at least from the people I've spoken to. When I bring you guys up, they already know who you are. You guys have built a name for yourself in the blockchain space. And like you said, in 2017, things really did grow dramatically in this space. So how has that shifted the path that you are taking? You know, where do you guys want to head to now with all of the growth in the space? So it's been really, we've been really lucky, but I think we've worked really hard to maintain our reputation and we've been really selective with the clients that we've taken on. Okay. Because we want to maintain our brand and our reputation. We want to one, make sure that we align well with their team, that the expectations are, are level, you know, like where the teams feel like they know what we can deliver. And then we feel like we can not only meet, but exceed their expectations. And so we've made sure of that. We've also made sure that these are really quality teams that we're working with, with quality projects. Now I say that and how, but it's taken us a little bit of trial and error to get there. We definitely didn't always. How do you judge the projects and decide if that's a project you want to work with? Cause the team, that's like a tale as old as time. You can, you can figure out if you have the chemistry and if it's people who are qualified that you want to, like I said, team up with and work with. But how are you determining if it's a project you want to attach your name to? So the initial steps of that, I delegate. We uh, we worked with uh, someone for a long time who helped us with due diligence, and now PJ handles uh, the majority of that. Um, and has because he has an investing background himself, he really knows what to look for and also has a legal background, so he knows uh, the pieces to, to look for. Mm-hmm. And he's learning how to code as well, so a little bit of the technological piece as well. But we have a whole due diligence framework, which uh, judges sort of like the team, the technology, the market size, um, all different aspects. And I mean, some of it boils down to gut. And also we, because we're well connected within the industry, if they have advisors or, or people, um, we'll, we'll be able to ask, Hey, what do you think of this project? What do you think of this team? Have you heard of these guys? What do you think? And so we have some perspective from people that we trust as well. And so we'll oftentimes, even if everything seems to check out on paper, we'll, we like to sort of run it by people we trust and make sure. So that has really been integral because if you think about, it's not necessarily the same now because now we're much savvier when it comes to things that come our way and we can kind of tell pretty quickly whether or not it's something that we want to explore further. But, you know, this summer when it was just like six of us, I think we were just completely slammed and we were getting like hundreds of requests a week for people to work with us, teams to work with us. And I would guess that a lot of these were not legitimate. Yeah. We were getting requests from all over the world, which was a challenge in itself because I didn't realize that different cultures don't have the same expectations. They may really just be raising money to raise money to like blind their pockets versus to build cool technology. And so that was overwhelming because all of a sudden we had, and then, you know, a needle in the haystack, like may fall through the cracks because you're getting all this noise, but you don't recognize that this product is amazing because you're just so tired of hearing from these teams that are like, obviously not doing this for the right reasons. Cause we're in the middle of a gold rush. Yeah. And so there were a couple of times where companies would be like, Oh my gosh, we filled out the form on your website. We've been like knocking down doors. We've been calling you guys and like nobody responds. And that was challenging too, because sometimes these were really great. Or like until we heard from it from someone that we trusted, like, hey, you should pay attention to these guys. We we're like, oh shoot, you know, sorry, because stuff was just slipping through the cracks as it related to the inbound business. Because at the same time, we were really trying to do a really quality job for the business that we had. 
you know, and I think we're much more mature, you know, nine, 10 months later, because now we have the infrastructure in place to be able to, to service the, like the teams that are servicing clients don't deal with any of this inbound stuff. So they don't need to worry about any of that. But, you know, we were all wearing so many different hats this summer. We were trying to weed through what was good, what was bad. And we definitely made some mistakes, but we learned quickly. Like you learn by a month or two in, you know, whether or not the teams are, you know, if there's, like you said, the chemistry piece, you know, are, are we jiving with your team? For sure. And and also, like, is this team out for the right reasons? You kind of can uncover that. And there were times where we thought that they might be, and then we kind of discovered that maybe they were. And Have there been times that you've dropped a client? And what were the reasons for it? Many, many, many times. Did you realize this isn't legitimate or... What are some reasons? Yeah, there were, there has been some of that for sure. There's been some where the expectations are just unreasonable and we've realized they're, you know, we're never going to succeed um, with what they sort of think that we can accomplish. Like sometimes they think that we can just wave a magic wand and get the millions of dollars. And while the marketing is a, is a piece of that, we're not, we're also not investor relations necessarily. And so we have relationships, but we're also, I'm pretty protective of those relationships, especially with the VCs and things that sure absolutely and so I'll only send the stuff that I'm like you know 250 that I would put my own money in you know to like those people because I don't want to be sending them everything and and frankly like I think at this point we have a really symbiotic relationship with those types of uh, people and companies because they know that we see a lot and so by the time they become our client we've done some level of diligence and so it's not like coming off of the street but yeah I I think there's been a couple of different reasons and sometimes it's just like these are you know like sometimes I think that there's so much pressure with these um, ICO campaigns that sometimes when there's just when the client isn't necessarily being respectful of my employees uh, verbally in, in certain cases like it's an automatic drop like you know we run a professional organization and I'm protective of my team extremely protective and if it doesn't work it doesn't work and sorry like and there's not that many service providers in this industry that do a good job so it kind of stinks for them I think they have to start from scratch but we're not gonna put up with sort of poor behavior absolutely and you know you guys did come in at a good time where it's good that the demand is coming toward you and you guys can afford to be like, no, we, we prefer not to work with you guys. Um, and there's so many companies popping up and they need you and they need your talent because there's so many obstacles in explaining a blockchain venture. Like for example, I love talking to companies that are using the blockchain for social good. And one of the aspects of social good is that, you know, with blockchain tech and with cryptocurrencies, they are tradable on markets where you could eventually trade them for Bitcoin and then for your local fiat if you need. Uh, And that's something that, according to SEC rules and whatever, companies can't really advertise that. So let's say somebody in a developing community is providing a service uh, where they're getting paid in with a utility token from a blockchain venture. That's sort of a form of money that they can cash out and eventually use as money to support themselves. But we can't advertise that or companies can't really advertise that because of all of the, uh, the red tape with the SEC and whatnot. So what are some ways that you navigate that? Well, I think that what we're, one of the reasons that we get asked this a lot and the companies wonder this too when they're coming to us. What I think a lot of companies forget when they're doing these fundraisers, and yes, it's important to have the information about the, how the, how the, 
process is going to work, but that can be done in like an FAQ type of scenario. Ultimately, our job is to get the message across to um, the message of like what they're doing with the technology that's so novel. So the story is really similar. The token's not really part of that story, or it can be like a small piece, but it's really not, you know, people say, well, how do you differentiate between utility and security tokens? Well, ultimately, in marketing, you really want to be talking about the story behind the tech, the story behind the team, the story behind what they're doing versus, you know, the the fundraising aspect. That's not what consumers want to hear. And if they do want to hear that, it's after they've already discovered why it's going to change the world. They're already sold on the project, right? So if you think about that, it doesn't really it doesn't really change um, regardless of how you're raising the funds. And and then you tell that story after, whether it's in like an FAQ or a Reddit ask me anything or there's ways to answer like how it's going to run, like how do I donate, how do I contribute, you know, those types of things. But that doesn't really relate to us and our marketing because when we're talking about our role, we're really talking about earned media. So, you know, getting the press excited about these projects. Now the press is usually not writing about the token sale element of these things. They're talking about the world changing technology, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what they care about. And so that's, you know, the mentality that we go at it with is like, what's the story here? What are the exciting news hooks? And the token is, I would say, almost never an exciting part of that. Well, I think when the company is tar- is a B2B company, then you're absolutely right. It's the game-changing technology. But when they're targeting regular consumers who maybe aren't so involved in the crypto world, one of the reasons they would be enticed to do it is because whatever service they're providing, whatever P2P service they're providing, they'll be quote unquote paid with the utility token. So it's a, it's a way to sort of get them excited about saying that by participating in this P2P economy, you're getting paid with these tokens, which are then tradable, you know? So that's, that sounds like a tough thing to navigate. No. Do you mean like through an airdrop or a bounty program or something like that? Or are you talking about utility tokens that are directly uh, marketed to consumers? I'm saying like when the company post ICO is working and functioning, um, such as RightMesh, for example, you know, uh, as you use somebody else's connectivity, they receive utility tokens. That's their incentive. Um, now, one thing I don't want to cross any lines here, but just like all of the tokens that are produced, they're later on markets where people can exchange them for fiat money. And that's something that would draw people into using a platform like RightMesh, into using their sort of technology. Uh, so what's the deal? How do we communicate that to the average consumer? I would say that that's not a big part of, I think that that's not a big part of our marketing strategy. I think that the messaging, you know, for RightMesh, for example, is really about how mesh networks, you know, are a more efficient way of sharing connectivity. The, the message has largely been around you know, connectivity is a basic human right Mm -hmm. as declared by the UN and X billion amount of people don't even have access to information. And how can we change that? And mesh networks are means of changing that. And then explaining what a mesh network is and how it works. Now, you know, the thing that makes right mesh unique is you're right. The fact that this can be compensated, but if you consider it, like if you talk about, I always think about it's not a third world example, but in the case of right mesh, when you go to like a football game or an airport or something, have you ever noticed that your phone is like just ridiculously slow in mm-hmm. terms of like your data and your connectivity? Yeah. Oftentimes you can barely send a text. Yeah. So this is a problem because everybody's pulling from the exact same telephone pole from the same ISP. 
at the exact same time. And so it's not an efficient way. If you think about if one person was pulling from that pole and then that person was sharing with the person who was sitting to their left and then that person was sharing the data with the person to their left. If you think about just like if you drew a diagram of like, you know, 8,000 people pulling from one pole versus one sharing in a most efficient manner, then you think about that connectivity. It, it just makes more sense. It's much more efficient way to pull information. And so that only makes sense if people are incentivized monetarily, because like, why would I want to share my connection with the person next to me? Right? Right. Especially, you know, for us, because we're like, no, I don't want to slow myself down by having someone else connecting to me. And that's where the tokens come into play is like, well, you can be making money as you're using your own connection because you're sharing your connectivity and getting compensated for that. And the tokens are an instant settlement way to do that. So you don't even have to think about what you owe. So if it's more efficient for you to pull, you can pull information. If it's more efficient for you to share, you can share information. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it makes sense why there would have to be some sort of money around it because otherwise, like the reason that it is the way it is now is because everyone individually pays for their plan through AT&T and then AT&T shares it individually with each person. But if one person was pulling from AT&T and then sharing with the person next to them, it'd be a much more efficient way to get that, you know, connectivity. Right. And I just want to give a disclaimer for everybody listening. Uh, if you listen to our Right Mesh episode, the purpose of the utility tokens is, you know, their use then is that whoever receives the right mesh token can then use it to get connection from another node in the network. So their intention isn't for people to trade those tokens on a secondary exchange. That's more something that the community has discovered and the community does, which is enticing. Um, but-, but I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it because you said that's something that the community has discovered. And that's just like a secondary benefit. I think that that's not a key marketing point. And that's where I would say we draw the line. Okay. We're not talking about the value of these tokens at all, because if we imply, even imply that there's any gain to be had from investing in tokens or from buying these tokens that they could be worth more later than they are now, then we're selling securities. Right. And we don't have a broker dealer license at Melrose. PJ has a, has a, a background with that and used to sell securities at Morgan Stanley. So really understands the rules. And so we really have to be careful, but I don't think that that's a detriment to the companies that we're working with. A lot of these companies are now the security tokens are working with companies that do have broker dealer licenses. So they are licensed to sell securities. And all that means is that we're marketing to accredited investors, which are an intelligent investor community or, you know, successful. They have more uh, liquid money to, to lose. But the messaging is is fairly similar. The messaging is, you know, what they're doing to change the world. And it's not about how this investment's going to work for you. Right. Because that's for sure. speculative anyway. For sure. For sure. And I guess I guess that does make sense. Like you, you can explain to them that the utility token does have a use. Obviously, it's a utility token. So they can use it again. That's sort of explaining the incentive part. And then I guess what, what people decide to do afterwards, that's up to the community to figure out and not necessarily a marketing point. So I can see that. So again, a lot of these companies have very many moving pieces. You know, some of them have a foundation and a for-profit company and so many different pieces of technology. How do you guys work on crafting your story for the company? Because many of them, when I ask people, you know, about the company they're repping, don't know how to say something short and sweet and tied up in a nice neat bow. How do you guys craft that? What's your process? 
I think we work, we do a lot of whiteboarding with the companies when they first come to us and really try to get to the bottom of why this is helpful for the consumers or the people that we're trying to target within our marketing. And so that's, um, there's a lot of sort of brainstorming and hashing it out process. Ultimately, like when I'm explaining things to people, I try to understand where they're coming from. I try to use analogies that they may be able to relate to or tie on to. And that's usually the best way to get the messaging across is understand your audience and what's going to resonate with them and then speak to something that's going to that's going to capture sort of their attention. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're like a super technical person, you may want to get into the more background of, of what the, the details of the back end are. But I would say most of the time you really want to just explain in a very neat and clean way why this is interesting or why this is going to, you know, save money or save lives or, you know, try to tug at people's heartstrings a little bit. Okay. So you focus on like the why and the what and the how is a smaller piece unless you're targeting a more technical audience. Yeah. Or you can explain that the how in a very simplified manner, because oftentimes like with Bitcoin, for example, do you really need to know how it works or like that it's a ledger to understand its benefits? Well, if you don't, you can listen to my first episode. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, but do you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people, when they try to explain Bitcoin, they get into the weeds really quickly and really like there's ways to uh, make it appeal to people without having to sort of get into the the details of how it works versus what it is or what it could be and, and its benefits over cash. Right. So people can know that like uh, Bitcoin is easy to transfer overseas yes. quickly and cheaply, uh, but they don't need to know about hashing and Merkle trees, which you guys will learn about soon, but not yet. Right. They can just learn that like as it relates to an investment, you can say, well, it's, it's got a fixed supply. So if people find it useful over time. There's only so many Bitcoins ever produced. And so, you know, inherently that could have the ability to go up or down if people decide that it's not useful. So definitely. That's how people can kind of put it into perspective. There's not like an infinite supply. Like people could argue about fiat currency now. It's like printed without, you know, nobody really knows. So now we've talked about RightMesh, which is one of my favorite companies. I really admire the work that they're doing um, and one of your clients. Uh, And soon I'm going to be having uh, an episode going up with my interview uh, with NetVote. They're awesome. Really, these companies are making big changes in the world. Now, aside from these, what are some blockchain applications that you personally are most excited about, whether you represent them or not? Um, Well, you gave out two of my favorite examples. (laughs) (laughs) So now you need new ones. (laughs) Because I think that those are are really relatable, both, you know, for social good, but also to everyone. You know, there's inefficiencies in voting and inefficiency with information sharing. So those are two easy ones to explain. I am really excited about crypto being like a payment rail for day-to-day transactions. Now, no one of our clients is trying to solve for this at the moment, but I'm really excited for when we can transact day-to-day. Like I'm excited for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to scale where they're really the most efficient way to make payments. Now, I think we're getting there very quickly, but it would be nice to be able to transact. Um, And so I'm really excited about that. Like I love crypto and I, I think that there's so many potential benefits. For example, this summer, we had a lot of international clients. I mentioned that. And it was really easy to transact with them because they could pay us quite easily using Bitcoin or Ethereum. And now, you know, cut to the beginning or end of last year, beginning of this year. And it was like, 
it was so difficult all of a sudden, like it was, the fees were enormous, um, and not enormous as it relates to like wire fees, but like comparable to wire fees. Yeah. Those can be like seven to 12%. Yeah. So still less, still less, but, but a lot. And so, you know, it's something where we're, we're dealing with thousands of dollars, so it makes more sense. But when you're dealing with like, for example, I wanted to give my team bonuses in crypto, like small bonuses, like, you know, for fun, for the holidays, like a hundred bucks. And it costs like almost 20 bucks to send a hundred. And so now it's a lot less. Now it's like one or, or less, but you know, we're not quite there yet. And it's not that fast. So I have the utmost faith that we'll get there, but I'd love to be able to like use crypto like we use Venmo, for example, or PayPal, or even, you know, go to Starbucks and be able to pay with your crypto wallet because it's so easy and seamless and is more efficient. So I'm really excited about that. It's like the most straightforward use of blockchain technology and certainly not world changing, like not saving people's lives. But you know, remittances overseas and things that would change a lot of, yeah. you know, I, I really like the social good, which is one of the reasons why I love Right Mesh. You know, we're also working with a company called Spire that's bringing, they have distribution of sort of inexpensive cell phones or smartphones rather to third world countries already. Yes. So aren't they going to be working with Right Mesh? They or? are. Yes. They're partnering. Just, yeah. Okay. We actually connected them. Ha-ha. So yes. And, and basically they're preloading blockchain based wallets, you know, crypto wallets onto these phones so that that is so cool. Yeah. So that you're thinking about people who don't necessarily even have connectivity. That's why I love that right mesh is partnering because now they're going to have connectivity on their phones potentially as well through the mesh network. And then they're also going to have preloaded wallet and they may not even know that they have that because it's going to be such an easy user experience. So I'm excited about those social good applications because, you know, and those are the people that really do need crypto as uh, currency. You know, we don't, need crypto to buy Starbucks and pay for Amazon and whatnot. Right. But it helps people who, you know, maybe are refugees and whatnot. I totally agree. So I'm excited about, you know, applications that will change people's lives, not just like our charmed lives, but, you know, people around the world may really be longing for better systems or people, you know, like even crypto can really solve for like inflation and deflation, like in Argentina and and Venezuela and places where it's not safe to even store cash. You know, that's like, I haven't personally experienced that, but I can only imagine how scary that would be. Absolutely. You know, to one day realize that the money that you've been saving up for a really long time is is worth nothing. Yeah. That it's cheaper to use the paper money than to pay for toilet paper. Absolutely. And that's why I really believe in even like the original, you know, like in Bitcoin, ultimately it's like, I do feel like that one's truly pretty decentralized although you know we're we're having some issues so there's definitely room for debate there but um you know that like there is there really is a use case here even if it's just for a long-term store of value like digital gold definitely and i feel like bitcoin has first mover advantage but i'm i mean i'm a believer in all sorts of different types of crypto and i think that ultimately whoever does the best job failing i'm really hopeful that bitcoin can solve their scaling issues and sort of just uh their internal disputes so that it really can be one of the true winners at the end, but you know, there's a lot to be seen for that. But I definitely think there's a use case there, if that makes sense. Like I think yes. that ultimately, even if that's not a pick, cause I don't think that you can necessarily be both. If you're a long-term store of value, then you probably aren't going to be a day-to-day payments rail. And I think originally Bitcoin was setting out to do both, but like just the reality of scalability, you can't really do both and do it well. But I think that we'll have 
you know, a couple that might be really good long-term stores of value, whereas we all have a couple that will be really good to transact with day to day. And I'm excited for sort of those things to emerge as like winners and, yes. and really have, you know, feel strongly about, okay. Cause it's really early days and you just have, I, I can't say with any confidence about what I believe is going to be what we transact with day to day of the, of the ones that we have now. Hopefully also it natural, not natural selection will take its course and take out the ones who are oh, just clouding, <laughs> clouding up the space. <laughs> now, Kelly, you have a podcast of your own. Tell us about your podcast. You know, where else can we hear you talk about Bitcoin and crypto and all the exciting projects you're working on? Yeah, it's called Crypto Token Talk. It launched in January and it serves as a crypto sort of 101 newbie friendly podcast. It's, I will say it's been like really challenging to keep these uh, conversations super entry level at times because you, yes, but I try to make sure that it's newbie friendly or I provide a disclaimer because I really feel like there's so many amazing resources in this industry, but there weren't as many on-ramps for those who are really curious and looking to learn, but don't know where to get started. And so that's what I've hoped to bring through my podcast. Now I've had some incredible conversations with people like Tim Draper and Chris Kovalik from Coin Taxes is a great episode about, you know, what on earth to do about taxes as it relates to crypto and how does that work? And and so I, I've had a lot of fun having these great conversations with people who are much smarter than I am. And <laughs> I've also made sure that every other episode is a woman, um, features a woman, because I think there's so many talented females in this industry that, you know, really need a microphone about what they're working on and doing. And so I agree. I think we have about 22 episodes up um, and we're producing them weekly now. So it, for a while it was uh, twice a week because we had so much content to get through, but now we're doing it steadily at one a week and it's been a really fun project and I think it's a great resource for people who are looking to get started and you can really pick based on the topics that you're interested, whether it's, like I said, um, you know, basics of Bitcoin and the history, the stories behind it or blockchain in general and what that's about or, you know, Ethereum and what on earth that is. And each one has sort of a descriptor about what you can expect to learn. Amazing. Well, we'll link to it in the description in this episode so you guys can keep up with Kelly in her podcast and yeah, how else can they reach out to you? Do you have a Twitter, email, any preferred method of communication? Yeah, my Twitter is uh, at Crypto Kelly. My name is spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y. So it's just Crypto Kelly. And um, my email is Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, at MelrosePR.com. Twitter is a great place to, to reach out. Or LinkedIn, I'm Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, Weaver, W-E-A-V-E-R. Perfect. Guys, get in touch. Follow her on Twitter. She is a genius in the crypto space and knows how to translate this crazy, confusing tech to normal people talk. So follow her and <laughs> learn. <laughs> Please. Thank you so much again. And thanks for all you're doing. It's, I feel like um, it's similar in sort of our goals and it's fun. I think so too. It's great to be having these conversations. So thanks for contributing. I agree. And most of all of my uh, interview subjects have been women. I need more diversity. I need men. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's yeah, great. It's, I love and it's just so happened. So, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad we're growing in this space. Yeah. It's definitely yes. great. Thank you so much for joining. I will say this. It's a great opportunity for women to get involved because Hell yes. there's so much opportunity in this industry in general that different skill sets like exist just like we did with PR. Like I had this skill in PR and I applied it to this technology. If you have a skill in whatever it might be, telecommunication or legal or 
whatever, you can apply it to this technology. And, and because it's in its infancy, I think we need all sorts of not only gender diversity, but like cultural diversity to enter the space so that the products that end up being built are applicable to those who need them, right? And so if it's just like white men and white women who are building this tech, then we're probably going to miss a huge yes. amount of people who might need it, you know? And so I think it's important. I could not agree more. The people best fit to solve their problems are the people who are experiencing those problems. So, again, I couldn't agree more. Great point. Guys, follow up with her. Follow her on Twitter. Listen to her podcast. You will not regret it. Thanks so much, Kelly, for joining us. Thanks again. Thank you.